a moment when your child says that he'll pray, and you know how he prays sometimes, it kind of scares you what he's going about, about to say. I'm glad he did well and he kept it short. You never know what comes out of his mouth in prayers. If you would please stand for the reading of Christ's word this morning. May you hear the word of Christ. Moreover, I saw under the sun in the place of justice, even there was wickedness. In the place of righteousness, even there was wickedness. I said in my heart, God will judge the righteousness and their wickedness. For there is a time for every matter and every work. I said in my heart with regard to the children of man that God is testing them, that they may themselves be but beasts. For what happens to the children of man and what happens to the beast is the same. As one dies, so dies the other. They all have the same breath, and man has no advantage over the beast. For all is puzzling. All go to one place, all are from the dust, and to dust they shall return. Who knows whether the spirit of man goes upward or the spirit of the beast goes down into the earth. So I saw that there was nothing better than that a man should rejoice in his work. For that is his lot. Who can bring him to see what will be after him? Let us pray. Father, we thank you again for the reminder that you have gathered us here this morning as your church to hear the word preached, to hear the word, and so that it might soak deeply into our hearts and into our minds, that it may perform in us, that it might activate in us through your spirit so that we might be your people, a people of great patience and love and kindness. So, Lord, during this time, may you work through your servant so that your word can be preached and your word might spread forth from this place through our lips and through our lives. We offer these things in the name of Christ. Amen. You may be seated. I think we've seen each week... That Ecclesiastes has shown us that no topic and no subject is out of bounds. Look what we've seen so far. Work, laziness, desires, histories and traditions, folly, wisdom, self-indulgence, food and drink has been a topic several times, fortunes, even concubines, pleasures, goodness and evil, possessions, birth and death, planting and harvesting, killing and healing, weeping and laughing, mourning and dancing, embracing as well as a pushing away, seeking and losing, keeping and casting away, tearing and sowing, keeping silence and speaking, loving and hating, warring and seeking peace, beauty, eternity, Fearing God, those are just some of the very topics that we've seen come from Ecclesiastes in the first three chapters. And so what we discover in Ecclesiastes that it reveals to us a simple truth, and it's this. Life is not so clean. Life isn't so black and white sometimes. Ecclesiastes reminds us of the complexity of life itself. It's messiness, and yes, even that 
there might not be black and whites, and sometimes there's not even grays. That what we discover is that God has created His world with an entire palette of colors. And so what we see is life is very vivid and vibrant despite its very tragic and despite its very grievous environments and circumstances. What we'll see throughout this sermon today, I think, is a little a bittersweetness. If I can give you another term. Think of the bitter tastes that you've had just this week. I mean, we've just come out of Thanksgiving. Think of the bitter foods you ate this week. Maybe dark roasts of certain coffees. That's my favorite. I love the darkest roast that I can get. Maybe certain red wines, Merlots. Brussels sprouts. That was a hot topic last week in our Thanksgiving feast down here. Brussels sprouts, a certain bitterness to them. Even certain greens that have that bitter flavor to them. Now think of some of the sweet flavors you tasted or have tasted, such as red grapes. Maybe sugar on your strawberries, as my children love so much. Or maybe your favorite ice cream flavor or that pumpkin pie. The sweetness of those. Or my wife's favorite, Hershey's chocolate bar. The sweetness that's there on the tip of your tongue. Now, if we put those together, the bitterness and the sweetness, we have what we call bittersweet. Now, we take certain foods that are bittersweet and we put them into our own life. So, the passing of a loved one, for example, could be very bitter. Very bitter. But we might also remember the sweetness of the fact that they are in the presence of Christ himself. So there's a bittersweetness there. Or even the bitterness of a winter snowfall, the bitter cold that there's, continues to nip at us, but the sweetness of its beauty, especially as our children play in it. Or maybe even the bitterness of those who graduate high school the bitterness that now they are no longer in this school. They've seen it for roughly 13 years. And now they're beyond looking for the sweetness of new adventures and new journeys and new futures. Heirs and generations before us, Christians would refer to this bitterness of sin, yet the sweetness of Christ's redemption as Felix Culpa. Felix Culpa, it's a Latin term meaning happy or blessed or fortunate fault. A happy fault, a fortunate fault, a blessed fault. And so what they were looking at is that they would look at the disobedient faults of Adam and Eve and then they would see how that sin had ravaged so much of God's creation, how it ravages our hearts. But then they would look at the sweetness of Christ's redemption and His restoration. And they called it Felix Culpa. A fortunate fault. So you have this sinful life in which we cannot quite move away from because we're still all too human with our faults. But the sweetness of Christ's redemption that continues to work in our hearts to make us look, look more and more like Christ. So this morning, I hope we can discover the sweetness. I'm looking at these topics. The sweetness of justice 
despite the bitterness of injustice that seems to run rampant in our world, and also the sweetness of life and eternal life, despite that we continue to taste of sin and the stings of death. I think we'll see that throughout this sermon. But there's two questions. I'm going to ask us one right now, and then I'll come to the second one here in about five minutes. The first question I think we have to deal with, and it's one that is directly tied to the first couple of verses at Ecclesiastes 3, verses uh, 16 and 17. It's dealing with justice. And what we want, church, hopefully, is a, not just to ask the question, what is justice, but what is biblical justice? We want the scriptures to, to give us categories, to give us a lens through to see the world. We want them to teach us of how to see what is just, what is unjust, what is uh, this way of life that we are calling, where you've been called to live out. Simply put, how I define biblical justice is it's God's putting the world's wrongs to right. God's putting the world's wrongs to right. Ultimately, we see this justice inaugurated or opened up through the death and resurrection of Christ. We see it perfectly displayed there. Why so? Because what we find in Jesus' death is he is taking on the world's wrongs. And Jesus' resurrection is the defeating of those world's wrongs through his own resurrected life. So we talked last week about a $100 theology word, sanctification, in which we sort of clarified and meant that this is God's active and holy work in our everyday lives. Well, I've got another $100 theology word for you this week. It is justification. They're tied together, justification and sanctification. You can hear them, but they're tied together. Justification is when this cross event happens where Christ is crucified and here you have this faithful and sinless son who takes on the unfaithfulness and the sinfulness of humanity, that brokenness, and he makes us righteous. He makes us justified before the Father. That's justification. You might even hear it sometimes in this little term, just as if I never sinned, relating to justification. Just as if I never sinned. Well, how is that the case? Because Christ took your place. And when the Father looks at you, he sees Christ because Christ's work is sufficient and it's perfect. You have this perfectly laid out in a simple verse in Romans 8. Romans 8, 1, in which Paul says, There is therefore no condemnation for those who are in Christ Jesus. No condemnation because Christ has taken that condemnation. He has taken on that sin and he has beaten it through his resurrection. So to believe, as one writer puts it, this message of God's Son to give believing allegiance to Jesus as Messiah and Lord is to be justified in our present by faith. Now I want to take a second. I want to move back, step back in just a second and look at the question, what is faith? Because I think we hear this word used so often, and sometimes it can get muddied about what we mean by faith. And again, I want the scriptures to clarify what we mean by faith. 
Let's let them define what we mean by faith and not Webster to define. As, Web as helpful as Webster's dictionary is, we want the scriptures to help us first define what faith is. So faith, let me begin with what faith is not. Faith is not the opposite of evidence. Church, our faith is on, it depends upon the evidence. Well, what evidence is that? That Jesus actually rose from the dead physically. That is our evidence that we point to. If there is no evidence that he did not raise from the dead, what does Paul tell us in 1 Corinthians 15? That your faith is in vain. It's useless. But if Christ really did resurrect from the dead, then your sins are forgiven by faith. That's exactly what he says in 1 Corinthians 15. So faith is from evidence that Jesus truly rose from the grave. It's not the opposite of evidence. Faith is not, for my second one, a leap in the dark. Sometimes we hear this a lot. Well, it's just a leap into the dark. Let me give the opposite of this. Faith is walking in the light. The light of the scriptures, the light of God's word, it gives light, as the psalmist says, to our paths as we walk. It's not that we don't know where we're going. We know exactly where we're going because God's word is the light to our path. It is not a leap into the dark. Faith is not the opposite of works. Sometimes we hear that as well. It is the faith that Christ has perfectly displayed that he gives to us by his spirit that abounds in works. Do you get that? It's not that we work ourselves to gain favor from Christ. That is impossible, church. That's what we call a very unhealthy view of religion, that I can do enough for God to love me. That's the opposite of the gospel, is that we were already sinners and God loved us. And so what you find here is that faith gives life to our daily works. It works in us and through us so that we might display the beauty and the grandeur and the splendor of Christ. And the last one, faith is not just belief in the right things about God. What I mean by this is that we just acknowledge in our heads what Scripture says. That's not faith. That's just a knowledge here as opposed to a knowledge here also in our hearts. Faith works in our hearts. It works in our minds. It works in our bodies so that we can live out that faith. And so faith, if I can finally get to it, is this. It is a fruitful gift of God's own faithfulness. It is a fruitful gift of God's own faithfulness. Let me try to explain this in a parable. Year after year, a farmer plants his crops to feed his family, his neighbors, and even the strangers near his field. Every early season, he breaks the soil to plant those seeds knowing they will produce. Why? Why? Because he sees the seeds turn into seedlings. 
which nurtured and nourished by the soil, the sun, and the rain, they grow and mature those seedlings into large plants of fruit. When the fruit has ripened, his family and his neighbors come together to taste of the farmer's labors. Well, why this parable? Let's see if we can break it down. Again, faith, let me remind us, is a fruitful gift of God's faithfulness. Before we could even taste of God's fruits and his gifts, we weren't the family in this parable church. We weren't even the neighbors. We were the strangers. What we find here, as Paul will say in Ephesians 2, is this. So then you are no longer strangers and aliens, but you are fellow citizens with the saints and members of the household of God, built on the foundation of the apostles and the prophets, Christ Jesus himself being the cornerstone. Because of God's work, because of his work, his labor, his redemptive, and his faithful action, we were brought in. We were adopted, if I can use Paul's language from Romans, into his family. We were brought into the neighborhood of God. We were once strangers and aliens, and he did this work to bring us in. Notice in the parable that we did nothing to taste of the fruits. We did nothing in the labor itself. It's the farmer who began and completed the work. He's the one who broke the soil. He's the one who measured the fields. He's the one who planted the seeds. He's the one who watered the fields. He's the one who cared for it and protected the crops. He's the one who reaped and harvested its fruits. And when everything is done, he invites us to taste by faith of his goodness and his faithfulness so that we can display that before others. And it is this faith, that, this faith that receives us into the banquet feast with Christ. It is we who dine with him to be in his royal presence and to enjoy the work he has already prepared and also finished. That's the invitation that we receive. So it's this believing allegiance to this loyal and this loyalty to the royal son himself. It is his kingdom, as you brought so well for the kids a few minutes ago. It's this loyalty to the royal son. We crown him because he invites us into that kind of presence. And so once we pledge to live under his rule and reign of Christ's kingdom, our king leads us into living this justified life. Which now finally gets us to the second question. How can Jesus' justification, his taking on of our sin and giving us a righteous life lead to our model for living? If he's our model, how do we model this in our lives? In short, the cross isn't just a momentous event in God's redemptive story. It's the model for the church to live out. In other words... It isn't only a place. It just didn't only happen at Calvary. It is a paradigm that we are to live out and let it touch every single part of our lives. It's the blueprint for our homes. It's the blueprint for our labors, our hobbies, our marriages, our work ethics. The blueprint for our attitudes, our hearts, our friendships. And we can keep going down the list. God's justice 
of bringing the world's wrongs to rights on the cross touches every square inch of our lives. So wherever we see wrongs in the world, church, we cannot ignore them because the cross was meant for them, those injustices, those wrongs. So we have to speak boldly towards them. We have to live boldly towards them. So it's okay for us to long, something we brought up in our Sunday school lesson this morning, it's okay for us to long for a true, ultimate justice. Because we see plenty of things that are wrong in the world. And it's okay for us to long for Christ to hopefully, in the near future, bring forth His full justice. To restore all wrongs to perfect rights. It's okay for us to long for those things. You see Paul long for those. Maranatha is what he says. A longing for those things to happen. Come, Lord, quickly. So that's just justification. That's just what does Christ do on our behalf to bring us into the family of God. That is the greatest act of justice that we can see in the world's history. Where he can take a bunch of strangers and aliens and make us household members in the family of faith. That is the greatest justification. That is the greatest just act that can be accomplished. So now that's just 16, 17, and 18 uh, verses in Ecclesiastes 3. Let's look at 19 through 21. Once it comes to the grave here, he's talking about death and how human beings and animals are treated no differently. And I think the main idea that he's trying to express is that the grave doesn't treat human beings and human beings any differently. Let's look at these verses. God is testing them, he writes, that they may see that they themselves are but beasts. For what happens to the children of man and what happens to the beast is the same. As one dies, so dies the other. They have the same breath, and man has no advantage over the beast. For all is puzzling. All go to one place. All are from the dust, and to dust they return. Let's clarify something very important here. These verses are not teaching that animals are equally valuable to human beings. I've heard this before from this verse. That's not what's happening. Animals do have a value. Before you pull out your stones and say, my animals, it's important. I know we've got a dog of 13 years of age. We've seen him uh, for many years. We've taken him on countless adventures across uh, between North Carolina and Tennessee to Georgia to Florida, all over the place. I'm not saying that our animals don't have value and inherent value. They do because God created them with value. But what I think we need to keep in mind is that Genesis 1 and 2 clearly teaches that animals are, and human beings have a different type of value. Because we are created in the image and likeness of God. We have a different value, a higher value than our animals. That doesn't mean mistreat them, continue to take care of them well, but there's a different value. Even Jesus himself says in Matthew 6, Look at the birds of the air. They neither sow nor reap nor gather into barns, yet your heavenly Father takes care of them. Here's the key part. Are they not of more value are you not of more value than they? So there's a different value here. 
What I think Ecclesiastes is after is this. Is that how come human beings, as much value as they have, and animals who have a lesser value, both enter the grave? Wouldn't there be different ends for them? They all go to one place, he says. It's easy for us to be very puzzled by these realities, as Ecclesiastes himself was. But he, what he's wanting, what he's desiring are real remedies, real solutions to what's happening for injustice and death. The teacher raises these very difficult and sometimes dark questions, and sometimes he just doesn't give us answers. He doesn't. And that's why it's, Ecclesiastes as a book is so very troubling to people is because there aren't a whole lot of answers to the questions and the problems that he raises time and time again. But there's a good thing about this, church. Ecclesiastes isn't our only book of Scripture, and it's certainly not the last book of Scripture. It is just only one book of Scripture. We have other answers that can provide us comfort to death. We have plenty of other books in Scripture and persons who give us comfort about death itself. The writer of Hebrews reminds us in the second chapter talking about Christ. But we see Him, namely Christ, who for a little while was made lower than the angels. He was crowned with glory and honor because of the suffering of death so that by grace, by the grace of God He might taste death for everyone. And then he adds a few verses later, For because he himself has suffered when tempted, he is able to help those who are being tempted. Did you catch that? He who suffered when tempted is able to help those, us, we, when we also were being tempted. This Jesus who takes, this God who takes on the flesh is not only redeeming a broken humanity back to the Father, He's also comforting us as well. He meets us where we are at in our humanity. So what you have, what's so unique about the Christian faith is that there is no other God in no other religion where He comes and dwells with us and takes on flesh, not just to restore and redeem us, but to comfort us. So He understands the struggles the pains, the depressions, and the like that are going on, yet he remains without sin. There are many injustices in our society that are extremely inhumane. Death, too, you could even say is inhumane. It's not what we were created for. That's why it's inhumane. It's the opposite of what is human. According to the scriptures, Christ takes on our humanity yet remains without sin to make us alive again, to make us how we were created, meant to be created and created to live. And it's so odd that here you have at the 22nd verse of this chapter that Ecclesiastes raises this question and does not give an answer. Because I think it really hurt him. He says this, Who can bring him to see what will be after him. Who can bring him to see what will be after him? The teacher of Ecclesiastes is being rhetorical. He doesn't think there's an answer. 
Who can come after me? Who can come beyond death and tell me what comes after me? Is that, that's his question. And again, thankfully, Ecclesiastes as a book is not the only book of Scripture, and it's certainly not the last, that we have other books of Scripture because we see that Christ himself showed us that victory. He showed us what comes after, and it is resurrection. We do understand and we do know through believing allegiance to Christ that one can see what comes after this life. Christ didn't merely assure his church of resurrected bodies. He brought an incredible spectacle that marvels our eyes, his own resurrected body before us. So let's conclude with this. Even in the midst of such bitter injustices that ransack our homes, maybe our court systems, our neighborhoods, our friends, or even our family members somewhere in the country and across the globe, there's much sweetness knowing where true justice lies, and that's in the hands of the sovereign king, Christ himself. And even in the bitterness of physical death, it continues to pillage our own bodies or even the spiritual death that corrupts our eyes and our hearts and our minds. We confess the sweetness of Christ's physical death and his resurrected life to defeat and plunder that death so that we might taste the sweetness of life and resurrected life. This blessed fault, Felix Culpa, this fortunate fault May it be on our tips of our tongues as we enter into this new week of Advent that starts next week, in which we celebrate for four weeks the Christ who took on flesh, the God who became incarnate. And so where we ask Christ to open up our eyes to see his presence in the midst of our, his continuing work in our own lives, and the one day he will return again to make all wrongs right, and he will put to death the death that... that we rightly deserve but he puts it to death through his own and he redeems and will redeem all things and how they were meant to be until then church our walk with Christ and our daily living that we have is pretty bittersweet we taste the bitterness of injustice we, we see the bitterness of death but we know the sweetness that is there in our midst as well knowing that Christ is sovereign as a just king, he is also sovereign over death itself. Until then, I guess we'll have to continue saying Felix Culpa, fortunate fault. Let us pray. Father, we thank you again for the reminder that your grace is sufficient and that you do provoke us, that you do invite us into a believing allegiance that your son's work is perfect, it's sufficient, it was completely faithful, even in the midst of our faithlessness. As we continued to run away, you brought us near. That was your work, not ours. And we thank you so much, Father, for your mercy and your long-suffering and your patience towards us that you considered it worthwhile to restore us and redeem us back to yourself through your son's work. 
And so, Lord, may we allow that justification, that work of Christ on the cross and that resurrection, that defeating of death and sin itself, may that bleed into our lives. May it soak into our lives this week as we look of how we can bring justice to our homes, how we can bring life and eternal life into our homes. We can bring justice to our neighborhoods, how we can bring life to our neighborhoods. May you speak to us in just the smallest stillness of silence to do those things. And forgive us, Lord, for the many times we will continue running away from you. But may you, like a good father, continue to sweep us near into your presence and remind us of your grace and mercy and kindness. We offer these things in the name of Christ. Amen.